Let's turn in the scriptures to Proverbs chapter 3. Today marks the fourth time that we've explored Proverbs 1 to 9. I call this God's instruction manual for how to get wisdom. These Proverbs were written about 3,000 years ago by one of history's greatest philosophers, Solomon. He reigned as king over Israel and Jerusalem from about 970 to 930 BC. King Solomon wrote several volumes on how to live life well, and this one, Proverbs, is his most general teaching on wisdom, and it's also his best-known publication. I've tried to reiterate over and over as we have studied Proverbs that wisdom refers to a skill, a skill in life that's developed. And this skill is, is a relational skill of how to rightly relate to God in every facet of life. I've tried to point out that wisdom is not typically the way we talk about it in our culture. It has nothing to do with how many degrees you have. It has nothing to do with your your IQ, you know, how you score on tests. You can be a very intelligent person and yet be foolish in this sense. It has everything to do with how you relate to God. Now, we saw in the first two chapters of Proverbs, Proverbs 1 and 2, how to get wisdom. That was Solomon's main emphasis. And he said things like, respect for God is central. And you've got to repudiate bad peer pressure. And you've got to respond when you're corrected. And even more than just responding when you're corrected, you've got to search, hunt out correction. You've got to seek it like you would seek for hidden treasure. That's how you get wisdom. The emphasis has slowly shifted into chapter 3. We're going to see it much more, Lord willing, next week when we get to chapter 4. But the emphasis has shifted from how to get wisdom to how to keep wisdom. And here in chapter 3, Solomon says, essentially, you keep wisdom by living a life of love. Love for God, what we studied in verses 1 through 12 last week. You... Love God in every facet of your life. You put God central in how you think and how you do business and how you handle money and in how you respond to trials. You keep growing in love for God. And what we're going to see today, we're studying Proverbs 3, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. You're going to see that love for others is central in this passage. Interestingly, The section that we studied last week, if you remember, was six couplets, pairs of verses that described what love for God looks like. And if you scan down to verses 27 through 32, there are again six poetic descriptions of what love this time for others looks like. There are six individual lines this time, not couplets. But there's six how to love God at the beginning and six how to love others central at the end. And it's a really interesting poetic 
rearticulation of the law, which centers on loving God and loving others. So let's begin reading in Proverbs 3.13, knowing that we're coming up to this section on loving others. Um, I'm going to offer several explanations while we read, and the message today is really only going to be able to focus on the first of the points that we get to. Verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. You might say the human who finds wisdom, the human who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand, there are riches and honor. You walk down her path, it's delightfulness, pleasantness. All her paths are peace. That's the Hebrew term shalom. The full, harmonious life. Life as it was intended. Verse 18 climactically says, she's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold fast to her are blessed. And then the explanation for why this is the case. Verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Now, like I said, I'm going to spend all of the message focusing on those verses that we just read. I just want to summarize it right now. The first section that we just read there basically says, if you get and keep wisdom, you'll live a full life. And the second section is going to emphasize security. If you get and keep wisdom, you'll live a secure life. See if that's not the case. My son, verse 21, don't lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and there'll be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you'll walk on your way securely, your foot won't stumble. If you lie down, you'll not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Don't be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and he'll keep your foot from being caught. When the Lord's judgment falls on the wicked, the Lord himself will stand next to the righteous and protect them. I'm guessing that Solomon may have been meditating on the law, particularly Noah how God protected him from the judgment that fell on the wicked, or maybe from meditating on Lot, how God protected him and sent his angel to protect him when his judgment fell on Sodom. And now come these six commands about loving your neighbor. I just summarize it by saying, if you get and keep wisdom, you'll live an unselfish life. Don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go, come back another time. Tomorrow is when I'll help you. When you're able to help him today. 
Those two verses are very similar to what James writes a thousand years later in James 2 or what John writes in his first letter. John three seventeen and 18 says, If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love dwell in him? God calls us, according to these verses in Proverbs 3, to help others, to protect others, to stand up for others when we have the power to do so. Solomon continues in verse 29, Don't plan evil against your neighbor. He dwells trustingly beside you. Don't contend with a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. Are you a person who's irritable, who likes to stir up fights, who is always looking across your fence line and saying, neighbors are doing this, and my neighbors are doing this. Or maybe you're looking across the pew and you're saying, they always do this and they always do this. Are you a critical person who's always looking for the thing to criticize in the people around you? That's not loving your neighbor. You need wisdom. Verse 31 Don't envy a man of violence. Don't choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. It says the Lord can't stand rebellious people, but he brings the righteous into his close friendship, into his eternal fellowship. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward scorners, he's scornful, but to the humble, he gives grace. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. These three verses that wrap up the chapter just emphasize that those who get wisdom get God's grace all those who don't get his judgment. That verse, verse 34, is quoted a few times in the New Testament. James 4, 1 Peter 5, the Lord opposes the proud, the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who welcome his authority, who submit to his counsel, who call out to him, I need your help, I need your mercy, I need your forgiveness, I need your strength. Are you a humble person? The wisdom of Solomon points us in that direction. Now, I point out again, the six commands in verses 1 to 12 focus on loving God. Those six do-nots in verses 27 to 32 can be summarized as love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. And sandwiched between those two groups of commands to love God and love others is Solomon's description of just the superior value of wisdom. I have a really hard job today. I don't think I'm going to do nearly as beautiful a job as Solomon does. We have to think about the value of the life that Solomon is commending. I'd put the main point like this. Those who get and keep wisdom are eternally blessed, blessed now and forever. You'll experience life the way the Creator intended it. That language, the way the Creator intended it, I'm leaning on Dr. Bruce Waltke, who defines blessed as living optimally, as the Creator intended. And like I said, all I have time to do is unpack verses 13 to 20. 
That's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I pray that Jesus is exalted and that we are fed well. The main idea is those who get and keep wisdom are blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? This is a term that is thrown around increasingly in our culture. What does it mean to live a blessed life? You see, entryway artwork in people's homes that just simply has the word blessed. Or there are sofa pillows that say blessed. People's t-shirts say blessed or hashtag blessed. You ask people, how are you? I'm blessed. Or you leave people and they say, have a blessed day. What does it mean to be blessed? At least according to the Bible, what does it mean to be blessed? Well, verses 13 to 18, verses 13 to 18 are sometimes called the hymn on wisdom, the hymn of wisdom. Notice verses 13 to 18, just structurally notice the first word of verse 13 and the last word of verse 18. The term that opens the hymn, blessed. The word that closes the hymn, verse 18, blessed. And in the middle are the descriptions of the blessings. The humans who get wisdom get the invaluable treasures of wealth, honor, long life, pleasure, peace, blessing. In a word, they're blessed. Wealth, honor, long life, pleasure, peace. The blessings that wisdom offers. The invaluable blessings that you get if you get wisdom. Now let's shift from like fourth gear down into first gear. As a pastor, I want to be faithful and I want to be helpful And I have to clarify what God means and what God doesn't mean when he says that those who get wisdom will be blessed. Do you scratch your head and say, wait, blessed with life, wealth, honor, pleasure, peace? What does that mean? I want to start with what it does not mean. This is not a guarantee that you'll live a long, rich, trial-free life. Solomon is not guaranteeing that every person who has a relationship with God is going to live a life that's wealthy and successful and that doesn't have any trials. If you believe that godly people will live a healthy, wealthy, trial-free life, you believe the most popular version of Christianity on the planet. It's called Health, Wealth, Prosperity Christianity or the Health, Wealth, Prosperity Gospel. And it is not good news, even though it uses the word gospel. It teaches that if you love God, then God will give you today healthy, wealthy, successful Days upon days. He'll bless you with all of these things now. And we know that that can't be what Solomon means here for a couple of reasons. I just give three. 
Verse 12, that just preceded the section, teaches that God is like a parent who lovingly disciplines children. And because God is like a loving parent, he frequently designs trials to shape our characters. And when God, our Father, designs trials for our lives, it's evidencing his love for us. Right? One of the reasons we know that Solomon can't be suggesting the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is because these descriptions of the blessings of wisdom fall in a book called Proverbs. As one of my teachers used to describe Proverbs, they're rules of thumb. They describe what's generally true. They describe what's eternally true. But they do not describe what is immediately true in every single case. They're rules of thumb. But the third and most significant reason we know that Solomon is not promising the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is because Jesus was perfect in godliness. No one related to God more closely than Jesus. And yet Jesus lived poor. Jesus was hated much rather than honored. And Jesus died young. That's not to mention what his closest followers experienced and what his followers have experienced throughout history. Trials and weakness, persecution and martyrdom, opposition and hatred. Jesus said, follow me, it'll be like master, like servant. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Solomon knows that for people who love the Lord, life is full of God-designed trials, trials that God designs in love. He knows that he's describing something that is generally the case. And he knows from even reading his own father's descriptions of the ultimate king, for example, in Psalm 22, that the ultimate king is going to suffer much. These verses can't be promising certain immediate health, wealth, and prosperity to those who live godly lives. So what does it mean? What does it mean that your life is going to be full of honor, wealth, and peace? Do those promises mean anything? I need to answer that question in two more steps. Here's the first one. Those who get wisdom will, generally speaking, be blessed in this life. We saw this last week with so many statistics. Generally speaking, Christians and even those who live with Christian values do in fact experience better health and longer lives. Christians, generally speaking, experience greater happiness and more fulfilling relationships. The statistics are in. They've been demonstrated over and over for a century. Atheists acknowledge the sociological data. Christians are generally more wealthy and more generous. All of that is generally speaking. Now verses 19 and 20 explain why that's the case. It shouldn't surprise us. Solomon explains why wisdom is such a blessing to those who get it. 
It's because God created the world in wisdom. So the logic works like this. Wisdom is fundamental to God's creation. We are part of God's creation. Wisdom is fundamental to us. As one scholar, Alan Ross, put it, if you surrender to God's wisdom, you put yourself in harmony with creation. In other words, car engines, they're generally made to run on gasoline. Alternative liquids won't work. Human life, we were created to run on wisdom, on a relationship with God. Generally speaking, rebellion doesn't work, or it won't work for long. It's just the way creation works. You want to get more specific? Virtues, like unselfishness, kindness, diligence, honesty, self-control, generosity. These virtues, generally speaking, they will lead you to live a happier, more honorable life. They're good for you. To put it another way, negatively, if you choose to rebel against the created order, you're going to choose confusion and destruction. You choose to reinvent marriage, it has awful consequences. You choose to create new genders, you try to live without God at the center, to ignore God's created order is to choose the path of destruction. And statistics on longevity, statistics on the emotional health of children, statistics on disease and STD, they've confirmed it over and over and over and over. To submit to God's wisdom is to submit to the way God created things to work. It's to live in harmony with creation. Now, I've gone through that to make the point that those who get wisdom, generally speaking, generally speaking, are blessed in this life. But I am convinced, and here's where the message is going to end, and there's still a good chunk ahead. Okay, buckle up. I'm convinced that Solomon has much more in view than just temporal blessings. Like, you might live a couple extra years longer. And you know what? You're going to be better off financially if you choose this way. Solomon doesn't have merely that in view. I'm convinced that when Solomon says you're going to be blessed, he means that those who get wisdom will be forever blessed in the kingdom of Israel's ultimate king. Solomon is not so narrow-minded to think, yeah, the blessings in, the, in this life, your friends are going to like you more, generally speaking. Going to have more money in your savings account, generally speaking. Generally speaking, you'll live a few years longer. He's not that narrow-minded. And if you let me take you on a tour through the terms of Proverbs 3, especially verses 13 to 20, I hope you come to the conclusion that Solomon is a whole lot wiser than you think when you first read him. Here's how I know that Solomon 
has much more in view than just some temporal blessings for a few years in life. It's because Proverbs 3, 13 to 20 is jam-packed with references to Genesis 1. And Solomon knows the storyline of the Bible. For example, in verses 19 and 20, Solomon explicitly recalls the creation of the heavens and the earth. He uses those terms. He goes on to describe in verse 20 how God powerfully created the waters below the expanse and the clouds above the expanse. Secondly, this is not nearly as obvious, but in Proverbs 3.13, I pointed it out when I pointed out that the one, that's twice translated the one in verse 13, blessed is the one, the one. It's the Hebrew word Adam. Human, man, Adam. It's the name of the first human. Solomon is deliberately echoing Genesis 1. On the sixth day, God said, let us make Adam in our image. Third, God blessed Adam. The word blessed opens and closes this poem in Proverbs 3, and the word blessed is central in Genesis 1 and 2. God made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. He blessed them. In effect, God said, Adam and Eve, it's my desire that you be happy and prosperous, that you live long and you enjoy and succeed this life that I've given you to live. Enjoy it. Succeed in it. God bless them. Fourth, this might be the most cryptic But in Proverbs 3.20, there's the word knowledge. Knowledge was fundamental to creation. And you see that word come up in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God promised Adam that he'd never die if he submitted to God's wisdom, to God's knowledge, if he let God know good and evil, or we might say determine good and evil. If he let God rule in that way, he'd live forever. That's why God placed this special tree in the middle of Adam's property, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge, it's the same word in Proverbs 3.20. If I were to fill out the title of the tree a little bit more, I'd say it's the tree that revealed whether Adam would submit to God's determination of right and wrong, or it would reveal whether Adam would try to dethrone God and dictate good and evil for himself. It was the tree that would test whether Adam would let God determine good and evil or whether Adam would try to dethrone God and say, I'm going to choose good and evil for myself. That's wisdom, right? And folly, it's the tree that will reveal whether you're wise or foolish. Of course, if Adam obeyed, he would live. He'd live long. He'd live forever. And if Adam disobeyed and ate from the forbidden tree, he'd die. If he tried to overthrow the authority of God, he'd choose death. And all of us know 
the history. All of us feel the history today. Adam tried to overthrow God's authority and he brought the curse of sin and death on creation, on himself, on us. That's why creation is like it is. Fifth, God barred Adam from the tree of life. He barred, he, he, he put an angel up to forbid access to the other tree in the garden, the tree of life. That was a tree that would give immortality. And after Adam and Eve had rebelled, God didn't want them to live forever in their fallen, cursed condition. He was going to plan a way to save them so that they could live forever in a restored, saved, rescued condition. Okay? We've gone through some territory. This is where I'm going to wrap up. I am going to apply each of these things we've just seen in Proverbs 3 to us and show that Solomon must be, he must be anticipating Jesus. Conclusion, Solomon points to Jesus in Proverbs 3. Firstly, again, these concluding points kind of generally, not point for point, but generally mirror the points we just saw. Only Jesus can fix what's broken in creation. The first page of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.16, along with several other texts in the New Testament, says that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus was like the GC of creation. The Father had architected it. Jesus GC'd it. So if you're going to live wisely, you're going to live for Jesus. To live for anything other than Jesus or anything more than Jesus is to ignore the very purpose for which you exist. And yet, according to that definition, all of us come into the world as natural fools. We live for ourselves rather than for Jesus. We're made for him, and yet we don't live in line with the purpose for which we're created. But the message of the New Testament is that the one who created the world has the power to remake it. The creator of the old creation is making all things new. And if you embrace Jesus as your Savior, you, as it were, dip your toe into the ocean of the new creation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. You've Step your foot into the new creation and one day you're going to swim in that ocean. Solomon knew that if he goes back to creation, he goes back to God the creator and he looks to God as the only one who can fix his creation. Creation is being fixed through God the Son to the glory of God the Father. The way you become part of the new creation and experience the blessed life is to embrace Jesus. Second, concluding application, only Jesus can restore blessing to people and to creation. If the first 
point focused on creation and the power behind creation. The second point focuses on blessing, the term blessing. When Adam brought the curse of sin and death on himself and on all creation, God began promising that he would undo the curse and that he would restore blessing to creation. This is what Genesis is all about. Just do a read-through of Genesis and highlight every time you see the word blessed. One of the key parts, key places in which you'll see it is when God approaches Abraham, who's an idolater. And out of nowhere, God says, in your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. That's a way of God saying, I'm going to undo the curse that covers creation through one of your descendants, Abraham. And you say, why did God do that to a sinful idolater like Abraham? Grace. There's no other explanation. Grace. God would clarify in the centuries ahead that this blessing that would come to all of creation would be through a mighty king from David's line. Solomon knew these promises. Solomon was not brainless when he used the term blessed. Solomon knew these promises. He sang about them in Psalm 72, the Psalm of Solomon. Solomon is actually singing that the promised descendant of Abraham and the promised descendant of David, who's going to rule forever on earth, is one guy. Solomon knows what he's talking about. So God promises to bless people all the way back in Genesis 1. And when creation falls under the curse of God, God says, I am going to restore blessing to all of creation. And he clarifies how that blessing is going to come. As you read through the Old Testament, you learn that God's blessing, God's blessing on you has everything to do with whether or not you submit to his plan to bring about this king. Psalms 2.12 says very bluntly, submit to God's chosen king, take refuge in him, and you will be blessed. It's the only way to blessing is if you submit to God's king who's going to bring blessing on all of earth. It's no wonder then, thinking on this term blessing, it's no wonder then that when Jesus comes, the message for which he is most known begins with, blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. That's not talking about living a few extra years and having a few more dollars in your pocket because you're a wiser saver and spender. It is generally true that people who follow Jesus do have a little bit more money in your pocket. Solomon is not thinking of those blessings. He's thinking of the blessings that come under the authority of Jesus who said, blessed are those who are broken in spirit and humble before God they're going to inherit the kingdom. That's the blessing Jesus is talking about. That's the blessing Solomon's talking about. It's interesting that the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, ends 
with seven statements of blessing interwoven all through it. And if you wanted to sum up all seven of those statements of blessing, you are forever blessed. You are eternally blessed. Even if you experience all kinds of sufferings and persecutions on earth right now, you're forever blessed if you persevere in commitment to Jesus. Solomon is anticipating eternal blessings under Israel's ultimate king. Third, concluding application. Only the obedience of Jesus, who was the second Adam, can undo the damage that the first Adam did. The first Adam disobeyed and brought sin and death on creation. Only Jesus perfectly obeyed God. And yet, even though, as it were, he earned life through his obedience, rather than experiencing God's blessing, Jesus chose to die under God's curse to bear the punishment of the disobedience of others. Now, I repeatedly observed at the beginning of the message, I tried to emphasize it again when I stated the main point, that Proverbs 3 is really all about loving God and loving others. That is what we're made for. We are made to love God and love others. And yet, as we confess this morning the truth that we're condemned and our twisted love evidences it, we live in a world of twisted love, just like Romans 1 and 2 describe My son and I were in Walmart yesterday and we walked right by the bin of merchandise, the center of the aisle when you walk in on the pharmacy side where all the products in that bin, their hats and glasses and shirts, all the products featuring rainbows and many of them, love is love in the middle of these products. Love is love. You ever thought about that popular slogan? Now, simply, right, if you're in elementary school and you're given a vocab test and you try to define a term with the term itself, you'll get it wrong, right? So it doesn't make very good sense in that way. But love is love. Is it true that whatever I claim love to be becomes love? is love? Just because I say it's love, it is love? I would say no, no. Love is goal-oriented. Love is something. I think all of us instinctively know what it is. It is sacrificial commitment to another person's best. Sacrificial commitment to another person's best. And that begs the question, doesn't it? What is your best? The only way to rightly understand what is best for someone else is to understand that they're God's creature in God's creation going to live somewhere forever. Best has to be understood in that kind of framework. 
Now, I hope you just see that we live in a culture that is trying to do what Adam did in the garden and define right and wrong for itself. That is our culture. And now, okay, I've just done the Paul thing, done Romans 1. I'm getting ready to do Romans 2. Some of you in here are saying, preach it, Joe. Because you're bothered by all this love is love stuff. And I want to say Romans 2 to you. Do you realize, religious people, that you're no better? That's Romans 2. You've never, ever lived one day loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've never lived one day perfectly putting others' needs above your own. Every one of us in here needs to be thinking, oh, when it comes to loving God and loving others, I'm a failure. I'm a fool. Help me, God, be merciful to me. If that's you, you're getting the point of the law. God didn't give you the law to say, love God, check. Love others, check. I guess I'm good. I'm not as bad as those other people. The law is intended to expose your need for God, to drive you to God. Right? I ended last week saying Proverbs 3 is a beautiful poetic re-articulation of the law, which can be summarized as love God and love others. And you must realize that the law gives you no power to obey it. Jesus gives you power to obey the law. By his spirit, your heart can be changed from stubbornness and resilience to softness and repentance. God can change your heart. You don't need the old covenant law. You need the new covenant grace. You need Jesus to forgive you of your lawbreaking. Lawbreakers don't need more law. They need some just way of being declared righteous. The only way that can happen is through Jesus who took your punishment on you and offers to credit to any who will follow him his righteous status. And to those who trust Jesus, the Spirit indwells us to begin to produce in us a love for obedience and a growth in obedience. The law should drive you to God. I end here. Only Jesus can give access to the tree of life. Solomon says climactically in this hymn, verse 18, those who get wisdom get the tree of life. Now Solomon knows that the tree of life is a powerful symbol of immortality, of eternal life. He knows that those who eat from the tree of life live forever and they experience life as the creator designed it. And Solomon knows that there has been no mention of the tree of life since Genesis 3. After Proverbs, interesting, the next time we see the tree of life mentioned in the Bible is in Revelation. It's mentioned once in Revelation 2 and three times in Revelation 22. And according to Revelation 22, 
in the future when King Jesus rules over planet Earth that he has completely rid of all sin and pain and sickness and crying and death. In that day, the tree of life will be an entire species of trees that grows on earth. It is going to be prevalent throughout the new creation. It will be growing year-round. There'll be plenty of fruit for everyone to eat as often as they desire it. And Revelation says it will be for the healing of the nations. You long for that? Did you wake up this morning to the headlines about Sudan and the headlines that continue about Ukraine and the headlines that continue about the aggressiveness of North Korea and the amassing of China? Are you grieved by the international conflict in our world? Well, in that day, the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations. One of my teachers explained it like this, in that new and better Eden, Old hurts will be healed. The nationalism, the racism, the acrimony, the bitterness, the long history of warfare, it'll all be healed. Healed. And the only way to experience that tree of life existence is through Jesus. I hope you see that according to Solomon in Proverbs, according to Solomon in Proverbs, to get wisdom is not merely to get tips for a better life, a life that generally leads to a few extra years in a more stable financial condition. Those are good blessings. I'm not trying to to, to completely eradicate those as blessings. They are blessings. But Solomon has much, much more in view. Solomon says here, to get the wisdom I'm talking about is to get something that's much more than money. In fact, it's to get something that no amount of money can buy. He says, essentially, to get wisdom is to get Jesus. It's to have a personal relationship with God. To get Jesus is to get the eternal kingdom of Israel's ultimate king. It's to live eternally and abundantly blessed in that kingdom. So I say very simply and pointedly, do you want a blessed life? then commit your life to Jesus. Get Jesus. Call out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Have you gotten Jesus? Then I say what Solomon says, and I say what Jesus said, and I say what every one of Jesus' writers, uh, disciples who wrote the New Testament says. Do not let Jesus go. Hold him. Keep strong hold of him. Father, I pray that everyone in here would find the blessed life, the eternally blessed life that is offered only in Jesus. I pray for our good and his glory. Amen.
Amen.